2: Charlotte Pierce Baker is the featured author on this episode of New Books in African-American Studies, the interview series where writers of African-American life, culture, arts, and sciences discuss their new books. I'm your host, Vershawn Young, and I'll be discussing with Charlotte her new book, This Fragile Life, a mother's story of a bipolar son, published by Lawrence Hill Books this year, 2012. The book jacket says that This Fragile Life is a story told by a mother of her son's harrowing struggles with bipolar disorder. But after reading this book, I know that it's about so much more. It's about everyone's struggle to understand mental illness and its impact on a family. Struggling to understand a son who should have had it all. Set up for success. Mark has been struggling with mental illness for most of his adult life. This interview reveals why Charlotte Pierce Baker wrote this story and why we all need to read it. Listen in.
0: Hello, Charlotte.
3: Hi, Vershawn. Good to hear your voice.
0: Likewise, and thank you for joining us on New Books in African American Studies. Today, we're speaking with Charlotte Pierce Baker, professor of Women's and Gender Studies and English at Vanderbilt University. We're discussing her provocative new memoir, This Fragile Life, A Mother's Story of a Bipolar Son, published this year, 2012, by Lawrence Hill Books. This Fragile Life is the story told by Charlotte Pierce Baker of her son's harrowing struggles with bipolar disorder. And we're happy to have her on the show today to discuss this book with us. Charlotte, will you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself?
3: That's always a very big question, isn't it? Um <laughs> I'm I'm a native of Washington DC. Um went to school in in DC through college. Uh, ending up at Howard University in the 1960s. Um, after Howard, I migrated, if you will, across the country and went to Ohio State University and took a master's degree in speech and language pathology and you're probably wondering what that has to do with what I just wrote. Um, nothing, probably. I have changed slightly changed my fields of study along the way. I was a literature major at Howard University, and um, I'd, I'd like to say that I just decided I wanted to become uh, versed in all the aspects aspects of language. I did drama and literature at Howard, and then I went to Ohio State and studied speech and language pathology. I uh, taught worked in that as a clinician for a while. And then I went to uh, California and joined my new husband in California and um, worked a bit there and then we returned east and I went back to graduate school to get a PhD at Temple University and that's probably when my teaching began seriously or within university. And after Temple, and after spending some time teaching in a prep school, a Germantown Friends School in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, um, my husband and I both went to Duke University. And there, I took up women's and gender studies, along with the English literature, American literature, and then from Duke... I went to Vanderbilt, and that's a very quick uh, summation of my little migration um, in academics, but very pleased at Vanderbilt to be a part of, I guess, the growing and changing and shifting idea of what women's and gender studies are all about.
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
3: I was... um, Director of Women's and Gender Studies for three years. We tried at that time to get our name changed, but we had to wait a little while longer. And I think we have to have a few meetings and people from the outside looking at what we're doing. And I hope and hopefully we will be able to to change the name um, to mirror more what's going on in society. Mm. Um it was also I can tell you that at the time of my first book, uh Surviving the Silence, Black Women's Stories of Rape, that I I did a, a switch in what I focused on in literature and I switched to trauma and started working in the area of trauma studies. Mm-hmm. And that's where I've been.
0: Now, in the introduction, uh I just called um, your book a memoir, but that might not be quite right. Um, it's part memoir it's uh, part literary nonfiction there's creative writing and poetry here it's also the, the book also includes uh, the poetry from uh, your son Mark, who the book uh, is about. How would you classify this book?
3: Um, I would uh I think it is memoiristic. I, I can say that about it because it is my point of view and I'm the one telling the story. Um but I think people have trouble categorizing the book. I think they had trouble when they put it in the bookstore. Where is this book going to fit? And um I think it's biographical as well as memoiristic. Um and I think and it also I hope speaks inadvertently to issues of gender as well as race. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a a one bookstore put it in the psychology section. So I I was very pleased about that (laughs) because um, usually you don't get that kind of, um, what, broad look at a book that is written by an African-American woman about an African-American family. So um, it's all of those things, I think, Vachon.
0: I borrowed straight from the book jacket when I described uh, what your book is about, uh, This Fragile Life, A Mother's Story of a Bipolar Son. But what would you say the book is about?
3: Oh, I would say the book is about our family dynamic, um, and that that's what I hoped it would end up being, that people would see this, okay, the mother writes the story, but it really is about a family, a family in crisis, a family dealing with um, an illness that really is traumatic and changes the lives of everybody in the circle. Mm -hmm. I want to
0: say that I've been an admirer of yours uh, and of your work for a a very long time, and and one of the things that I'm... You're welcome. One of the things that I most admire is just how brave you are. I mean, you take difficult subject matters um, and you write sensitively and at, at length about them and personally. Um, and I want to start out by asking you a, a hard question, which is um, how did you come to, to write this book?
3: It was not planned. Uh, I think I have to start out that way. And this is fascinating to me as well, Rishon, because most people, when they write a book, sit down and say, oh, I'm going to write on this topic. This is what I need to do. And this is my long-term plan. And for my short-term, I'll do this and this. It wasn't that way for me. With either book, really, but specifically with this one, I didn't make a conscious decision to write this book. Um, I didn't need to write a book, you know, for um, promotion or anything like that. Um, I, we were all blindsided by this illness, and I began writing and taking notes to help myself in the beginning. Just to remind me what was going on, what had happened. Bipolar disorder, um, in its, in its worst manifestation is, it's, it's like a tsunami. You know, it just sweeps you up, sweeps you in, and you don't even know what's missing. And so I had to keep notes to figure out, well, why is our son acting like this? Why is he now, oh, my goodness, in the hospital? Now what do we do? We didn't even know where to turn for doctors um, or what kinds of doctors and therapists were needed. So I learned everything moving along, and that's how I came to know bipolar disorder and how all of us did. So I I started taking notes um, and really to give us some kind of uh, framework. Working, uh, especially my husband and I, um, because our son wasn't always with us. Um, He wasn't present. um, But we felt we had to do something to help him along. Mm -hmm. So that's how it started, um, really, his notes. And as I was writing one day, I thought, wow, wouldn't I? I would have loved to have had some of this information. I also started reading. Anything I could get my hands on um background on bipolar disorder, which um was previously previously known as manic depression, did I know that? No, I didn't know any of the basics, so as I'm taking notes and jotting things down and realizing how fascinating this was, as well as oh my goodness, that's what's happening to our son right now, um I thought. Maybe I could make a notebook for other parents and I I really first started thinking about it as other women, other mothers Um, and it really did start that specifically. This is for other mothers so they won't have to do what I am doing now, so they won't feel so alone, so that they feel there's something to hold on to. And so, it started that way. That's how I came to write this book. And then, as I settled in, I realized that I was writing anecdotes. And then, I went back to that, and I, someone said to me, uh, who was in psychology at Duke, um, said, have you thought about, you know, like, making this a manual? So, you see, I didn't know what it was going to be, Mm -hmm. Um, and and I said, no, I hadn't thought about doing a manual, but she said, this would be so great for people who, like you, don't know where to go, Um, they don't know where the doctors are, nobody was talking about bipolar disorder, nobody was talking about mental illness, Mm -hmm. Um, so this has been a long time in coming, this book. And it's had many manifestations, many drafts. Um and I am still stunned by the book.
1: Mm-hmm. Because
3: I never expected it to end this way or end up this way, I should say. So that's I am maybe giving you more information that you want than you wanted, but that's that's how it was just an um a devolution.
1: Mhm.
3: Um
0: and I want to say that throughout the book, um, you render what you just described, um, not knowing where to go, the, um, uh, frantic feeling, um, that you and sometimes your, your husband had and the desperation looking for help. You render, those experiences beautifully, and you really bring the reader into the story, Um, and uh, I I, want to thank you for that. I do want to ask you about a complication, though. Um, The title of your book, um, or I should say the subtitle, A Mother's Story of a Bipolar Son, does not include the word race and i noticed that in the opening chapters you at least at one or two points uh uh make a specific dis- distinction by saying that uh this was that your son is an african american male with bipolar disorder and when you wrote that line i i i i took a deep breath um because there there is layers of um uh layers of signification going on there an african American mm-hmm. a male and someone with um in a, a mental illness that is still not very well understood. Can you talk about that um well,
3: thank you for that question <laughs> um raise- was always a factor for me Um, but the butt of it is that I didn't really want to write I knew I didn't want to write a book when I started really writing a a manuscript okay I didn't I knew I didn't want to make it so solidly African-American because bipolar disorder has no boundaries, no racial boundaries, no um economic boundaries, cultural, ethnic, sexuality, it crosses everything, okay? There are no specific statistics about one segment of the population over another. Um so I guess part of me was hoping that it would end up being a book for everybody. However, um I felt the fact that we were an African American family was very important for the reader to know. Um and they could take the heaviness of it or they could take it lightly and say, Oh, they just happen to be or African American readers could take the book and say, Finally somebody's talking. You know? Um I guess I you mentioned that I seem to take difficult topics and and that's not a choice either. I think these topics just sort of grab me, you know, <laughs> and um, and I do not like silences when they hurt people, mm. um, and this, to me, to have been quiet, especially being uh, in the economic position that I'm in, okay, as a full professor, you know, with tenure and... I have a solidity that I I wouldn't have had if this had surfaced when I was you know just looking for a job or a junior professor somewhere. You know what I'm trying to. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Uh-huh. I understand. It.
3: Um and and I so I did want uh, I wanted it known and I realized as I was going once somebody said to me why don't you start at the beginning of Mark's life because I had started writing in Medias Race, and I was. Somewhere at, I think, uh, I really had in the beginning started when he got sick or when we were aware of his sickness. Um, and somebody said, but well, what about all those years before, <laughs> you yeah. know? Um, and then I had a dilemma because of all the reading and education I had done for myself on mental illness, bipolar disorder in particular. I didn't want people to think that he was a child with bipolar disorder because he wasn't. Um, and so I had to make that decision. How am I going to write about him from the very beginning so that people can see that, you know, he was a normal, happy, black boy. Um, but the thing that he ran into more than anything was racial. In, you know, events or incidents and what have you, which the one that starts when I went for daycare. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And So you think this child is not even three years old and people are discriminating against him. So I, I tried to make it organic and I didn't make up any of those situations. They really happened, but they happened throughout his life. Also, Mark, um, as he grew into early adulthood, um, has always been aware of his place in the United States of America. And I teach about race and ethnicity. My husband teaches about race and ethnicity. And so he had been living with this all his life. And he had known African-American poets and novelists and scholars. And so race was always a part of our household. So it seemed wrong to not have that as part of the book
1: Mm -hmm.
3: okay when I came to the title um, I thought I'm not going to worry about that in the beginning so (laughs) I put that away and said in time I'll go to the title and figure out what to do with it but meanwhile um, when the book found a home they asked me what I wanted to do with the copper and I really had never thought about putting photos on the cover I was trying to think of somebody's artwork or whatever and one of the editors said to me one day do you have any pictures of Mark when he was growing up and so I sent a whole bunch of pictures in um, and you know I wasn't waiting to hear back but in the process uh, I was getting phone calls and uh, one editor said, um, we have, and at that time I think they had even a younger picture of him than the one on the book, and it was something, uh, maybe it was a family, whatever, family picture, just all these different pictures, and so they made the decision about what to put, and they kept running it by their, um committees. And finally one of the editors told me, way late in the game, and it, I think because she had finally rehad a relationship by telephone, she said, "There's something I want to tell you." She said, "It's just kind of interesting, and I thought you might want to know, or might help you in the end to decide what you're going to do with the cover." And the anecdote was that when they put before committee uh, the picture of Mark alone, the, the oldest picture or the most recent picture of him alone on the book, and they took it to committee, thinking this is it. And everybody thought he was deceased.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And, and I thought, wow, that's really interesting. And and I don't think it had to do with race. I think it had to do with mental illness.
1: Mm-hmm. That
3: most, most of the books that, and I don't mean all, but most of the books that are memoiristic, um, if they're written by somebody other than the author, the person is deceased or the person is hospitalized, or the person is in prison. It was really, really interesting. And I thought, wow, this is really important. You know, here's a young African-American man who's trying to survive, and he's not in one of those situations. And so they ended up saying, can we choose? And I said, sure. And I agreed with their choice. There were, um, I didn't want to be on the cover, but there was this just a funny family picture that Mark liked, and I ran everything by Mark, um, and uh, he said, oh, that's nice, Mom, that's us together, so that's how the cover came about, and so it's no longer a need for black in the title, because you can look at the pictures, say, oh.
1: <laughs> you
3: know, so it was, it was great, I loved the fact that it was all there on the cover, without having black in the title.
0: And the pictures are on the cover are, are, are very nice. And, uh, as the saying goes, the, a Picture Tells a Thousand Words, and these, <laughs> these pictures are, at least uh, a couple of them um, have places in the memoir, I, I, and the reason why I say that is because of the first picture of, of the young Mark with the this full head of curly, beautiful hair. <laughs>
3: oh, that, you know, I, I had not forgot, I mean, I had forgotten that, uh, that anecdote and that picture. That's very interesting, yeah. That was the hair that she wanted cut, yes,
0: yeah. yes, you mentioned uh a a moment ago that Mark experienced um some racial discrimination, and that discrimination not only came from uh white um in the story that you relate about the um right. day daycare that that wouldn't allow a u ten enroll him but also from a uh a teacher. Um, or daycare administrator that did allow Mark to enroll, an African-American woman. Could you tell us about that episode?
3: She's probably alive and well, and if she gets a hold of this book,
1: (laughs) I wouldn't (laughs) want
3: her to think, oh, I know that she knew who I was. So I have to be careful here. But um, it was a daycare center uh, in Philadelphia, and... um, they They prided themselves on mixing races the races of children because there were a lot of children in the daycare who were uh children of faculty um but there were neighborhood children as well, so there was a cross section um but Mark didn't fit the he had to forget how I put it in the book, but he didn't fit the profile of the neighborhood child. Who was there because the parents couldn't pay? Mm-hmm. Um, and Mark was very verbal very early on, um, and I'm sure you know it interfered with her teaching to some extent because he had a lot of the answers, <laughs> you know that kind of thing, you know mm-hmm. the worrisome child when you want to say, "Please just be quiet, please." So um, he was really getting penalized for speaking or for knowing the answers. And the children, um, of course, the children process what they see, and they saw him being punished. Um, And so I'll never forget that day that I went by, decided that I needed to go by more often and just pop in. And um, that's what I saw, the children taunting. Mm Mm-hmm um and, and and Mark, you know Mark wanted his hair cut um, in in the style of the day, you know way back when um little boys who were black uh, had their hair cut very, very short, and the parts were cut in, and that's you know we did the best we could <laughs> to get him what he wanted, but it didn't work, and i now this is probably. Something off the page that I shouldn't say, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, I have a feeling that that's why Mark shaved his head when he uh, went away to school, went away to graduate school. He's never grown his hair back, Mm. except for his 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 wedding. He, I think he did that for my mother, (laughs) his (laughs) grandmother. (laughs) You know how that goes, honey. Can't you grow your hair? Right, right. (laughs)
0: well you know yeah, I, was, um, I I read into that um into that episode um a little bit and I probably read um uh too deeply but I was wondering if that teacher was trying to create a a profile of um african American men or boys rather um and um and their haircuts were a sort of way of, of presenting all of them as middle class, um, a way of domesticating uh, uh, domesticating them into the life of of school. And Mark's full head of curly hair <laughs> was, in some ways, you know, more, more radical. Even though, and this is interesting, it's ironic if if my reading has any validity, Mark was the very profile of a of a middle class african american male uh and and didn't have to uh create a performance in order to fit in that profile it, it it's 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 complicated um right
1: mm-hmm.
0: even you describe the the even the speech habits of of the teacher as being somewhat um overly pronounced and um you know a, Performing a heightened version of of standard english um, mm-hmm. in order to in my mind i'm I'm reading this uh, uh, in order to really sort of validate um her status as a teacher and her middle class her middle classness
3: um i don't think you're misreading i i I love it when the, well, first of all I tell my students um who, when they first begin to read literature, they said, well, I don't know what the author meant. And I'm, <laughs> so I tried to say to them, listen, that book doesn't belong to the author anymore, right? <laughs> you, the author wrote what he or she wrote. And you're supposed to dig, and you're supposed to find those gaping holes, or the things that the author just sort of, you know, let's just put a little dirt over this, you know, not too deep, and maybe somebody will go in. And I think you're quite right. I think uh it I was hoping that without my having to say it someone would be able to profile that teacher. Um and what she was either doing, not doing, uh, her animosity probably toward our entire family. <laughs> um, like what are they doing here and why are they um taking taking the space and creating this what? Not chaos, but you know, just just enough to upset my class. I I had all my black boys a certain way. You know, I know how to help them speak better. I know what they should look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing, this is not in the. <laughs> You have to remind me, Berchon, <laughs> that You know others will hear this, but I think this is a part of it. And I think I had it in the book at one time, and it just got kind of bulky, and I took it out. But a part of all of this, um, all that was swirling around Mark in this—it um, wasn't daycare. It was uh, you know pre-kindergarten. That's exactly what it was. Pre-K. Um, uh, we bought him pants with no zippers because it was easier for him, you know, to, to go to the little boy's room. Why make it difficult for a three-year-old, a
1: uh-huh. uh,
3: four-year-old? I never thought that made any sense. This teacher did tell me one day, and she said, and also the, the boys tease him because he doesn't have a zipper in his pants. Uh-huh. Uh, I never... I, I mean, there were so many things that I was not happy with about that space that we had put our child in, thinking that this would be the perfect space because he would meet all kinds of children and wouldn't develop any um prejudices, okay, if you will. And there he was, the middle of <laughs> everybody focusing on him. Um And so that was another one of the things that she thought, we should do differently. That we should buy him pants with a zipper.
1: The, oh. <laughs>
0: there is so um, much to to mine there uh, in that episode, um, I, and I do want to ask a couple more questions uh, on this topic. But I, I want to take
3: you... and, and that has not that has nothing to do with mental illness. <laughs> I just, I'm sorry. I I wanted you to see the uh, fuller picture out of that. Uh, pre-K since you brought it up
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: but I do want to take you to a, that particular reference um, in your book that, that I said really grabbed me when you wrote it um, on page 57 um, and this is well into um, the narrative and into um, uh, now Mark's um, diagnosis with uh, bipolar disorder and um, your and, and your husband's um, uh, attempts to try to understand it and to come to grips with uh, um, relating to, to Mark and to his condition. And the sentence is, by October 1996, Mark and Lisa, who I should say is, is his wife, uh, his first wife, had vanished totally from our lives. Our son was a black man suffering from bipolar disorder. He was unmedicated Probably high, and often on the edge of rage. I could not bear to picture him wandering the streets of Los Angeles.
3: Okay. I'm.
0: I'm. That's a lot. Uh, <laughs> what picture? What picture couldn't you bear of Mark?
3: Uh of uh, that line, I mean, yeah,
0: you mean
1: the picture of right wandering. the
0: the, the wondering um, it is it isn't exactly uh, a picture of mark, but it's of this of this profile of a black man suffering from bipolar disorder, not medicated, probably high, probably exhibiting some rage, what was going
3: because, on' uh, because I feared that he would be mistaken as a homeless man. Um, or a man uh drunk, a man with no purpose um and would be taken to jail mhm would it do you think it
0: would be easier to class a black man in that way than another race
3: not not as easily no, i um, Mark lived in South Central and four um, parts thereof, you know, in that vicinity. And it wasn't a very good area for black people who were not purposeful, okay, or, you know, getting in your car, going somewhere, whatever. I, I remember an anecdote that I don't think made it in the book. Um, when Mark was not, you know, was a graduate student, you know living in uh South Central, and he went to mail some letters at about two or three o'clock in the morning. uh He drove his car um and he was harassed by police when he got out to mail his letters um, they uh, and I remember when he told us um he said they wouldn't have stopped me if I'd been a white guy. And we totally agreed. Mm -hmm. And one of the officers was white and the other was non-white. And um, they seemed to enjoy what they were doing. And they made him, uh, you know, put his hands up against the car. And what do you mean you are here mailing? There's nothing open. You know, just uh, sort of taunting him. And uh, when he showed them his ID, which was an ID from USC, mm-hmm. and his driver's license, uh, one of the policemen, the non-white one, looked at him he said, oh, you're one of those. And they let him go.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And one of those meant somebody from the university. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, I think black men are harassed um, when they're not where they're supposed to be. Uh, at a particular hour, you know, you should be home, Um, and oh, they wanted to know why, where he got the car he was driving, Mm -hmm. um, things like that, so I think a lot of, um, I think a lot of harassment of of black men goes unreported and untalked about, Mm -hmm. Uh, it's almost as if, you know, why talk about it, yeah, it's just something that happens, you know? And I, I thought twice before I went out to mail those letters at two or three, but I wanted to get them in the mailbox because they were overdue or whatever. and They were bills. I have no idea. But it was just wrong place, okay, and you don't look like you belong here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: This is one of the... Um, what you just said is one of the examples of why your book is, is, is so wonderful to me um, because as I was reading it, Um, I read it from the perspective of an uh, African-American male, and I could see um, without your saying it, but you paint such beautiful pictures of um, throughout the book. I could see the, the, the complicatedness of what I'm just going to term uh black maleness um mm-hmm. and what it means to be a a, a black man i mean and, and finding difficulties uh, in society um uh fitting in uh, uh when mm-hmm. in, in any um in, in any realm i, I saw that yeah. throughout this book as we just talked about with uh, even in the two different schools that that um just talked about but also later on um in in mark's life what is the right way to be a black man kept coming up for me throughout this and so i now want to switch gears and ask you about uh, mark specifically um what's his reception to the book
3: um now um uh, now I have to explain why I said now.
1: <laughs> <In the> very <laughs>
3: Okay. <laughs> I know you were going to ask that. Okay, Bershawn, um, in the very beginning, it was sort of like, you know, that's something my mother's doing, you know, has nothing to do really with me. And I don't think he knew that, neither did I, that it was going to become a book. Um, when I... Okay, there are a couple of things. I, I, can I speak about his poetry a little yes,
0: bit? Yes, yes. Let me tell the readers for a moment, oh,
3: that, okay.
0: or the listeners, that you uh, included Mark's poetry and some prose um, yes. in in this book. And, I'm, and my own um, perception and opinion of that is that he's a he's a brilliant, beautiful writer. you
3: um, will love that.
0: <laughs> and uh, after you speak, I, I'm going to uh, tell you a particular moment of his writing that that really stands out. But go ahead.
3: Okay. Um, I uh, I wanted to talk about the writing of his. It's in the book because it does have a lot to do with how Mark um, has received the book and also his reaction to my writing it. I don't remember the year any longer, uh, but, uh, along the way I'm writing these, uh, pieces that end up becoming sections of the book. I never wanted them to be chapters, ever. And that was the first thing I was asked. Uh, why don't you have chapters, um, the editors? And I said, no, 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 no. Can't have chapters. No chapters. It's not about chapters. It's about somebody's life. Okay. Um, so that was one part of it, and I told Mark that, and he asked me, too, well, how will you delineate what's going on? I said, I'll figure it out. <laughs> That's why I said there's no uh, overall plan for the book. Um, so when I I was trying to get across certain ideas to the reader, I was trying to get across um, the volatility, for example... I was trying to get across um, to the reader, psychosis. I was trying to get across to the reader, suicidal ideation. I didn't want to sound like a textbook. I didn't want to sound like a mother who was hovering and watching every moment of her adult son. And yet, I wanted to tell these stories. And so I thought, let me look through Mark's writing. Now you say, how did you do that? Well, Mark and I have been very close, I guess, forever. Um, But when he started writing and he wasn't living with us, he would send me things and I would keep them. I kept all of Mark's poetry. Um, When he was making journal entries about jail and his feelings, he would say, Mom, what do you think of this? Because I think he always wrote with the idea that maybe one day he would publish something. Um he also um, himself did about three or four small chapbooks that never got published, but I have copies of those. So I started looking through all that I had of Marx, and I thought, maybe he has a poem. Maybe he said something about this. And sure enough, I found things. So, I started popping in a poem every now and then or a piece of writing, and in the beginning, this manuscript this book was like three hundred or more pages of manuscript um I don't think you can read that much of mental illness and stillting <laughs> book, so obviously it had to be cut down, but I had more than I needed of his writing. And I've always loved his writing and so I started putting them in places to help the reader see that I wasn't um making this up, that I wasn't seeing pathology where there was none. You know, it was sort of like how can she talk about her son in absentia like this, you know? Mm-hmm. Doesn't he have anything to say about this? Mm -hmm. And so that was, that was Mark speaking. And as I began to do this more and more, I realized that our writing was speaking to each other. Mm -hmm. Kind of strange that every now and then it was like, wow, you know, that's what That's what I was trying to say, and I was pointing to a poem, and so then I would pop it in. Okay, I had started doing this, and finally I thought, oh, Charlotte, you haven't asked Mark if you can do this. Um, And the first time I asked him, he was uh, recovering from a very bad episode. And he said, sounds like a good idea. And he said, let me think it over. And, you know, like maybe the next day he said, um, I don't think so. I don't think so. He said, you know, because one day I, I may want to publish my own poems. And I said, fine. And so I just backed away. Um And because I had no deadlines, I didn't have a publisher. It didn't bother me. Um So I kept my writing going. And as I wrote more and more, I kept using his work. And I thought... I'll ask him again later. So I must have asked Mark three times and in the book I I do it the book ends there the time that I went to Atlanta and said I'm bringing you a full manuscript and I want to sit down and let's go over it and talk about it and then you tell me what you think and it was at that point that he said I see what I see what you're doing and he said yeah you can have the poetry uh so that's a long way of explaining how the poetry got in there
1: mm-hmm. how
3: mark um said and and after that i said anything since you've read the entire manuscript yes i will change things but i will not send it to press until you've read what's going to press and so um he read the final um manuscript before it went to the publisher and Bill said yes, and I have his signed copy, <laughs> I mean, signed um, affidavit saying, you know, I know what's going on here, and I, I agree to have my poetry and prose in this book. So I tried to, you know, gather everything that I could in terms of giving, the I was always aware of the reader, because I knew I wanted to be the reader, if you know what I mean. hmm hmm it it's it's the book not not the book, but I would have wanted a book like this or something. Um that would have put me in touch with a family or another person. And Mark said that. He said, Maybe mom, this book will help somebody like me and I knew what he meant by that. All the knees, you know. A black man, um, a man who got caught um and by that I mean got caught yes, by um uh, the system. But also got caught in a very developmental way. Um in high excuse me, in high school, um, marijuana was everywhere in his high school. I taught in his high school. <laughs> so I could come out of my classroom any time and I could get this whiff of marijuana and thinking, Oh my goodness. So you report it, you know, you do all the things that you, you know, nobody's going to show you or have it on them. Um, And it became known that, yes, people smoke grass at parties and but Mark was a track star. And so I think that helped a lot in curbing anything that he might have gone overboard on. But all the most of, I'll say, the young people who were smoking grass, smoking grass when they left high school or when they got married or when they went to graduate school but Mark got caught because he was self-medicating and he didn't know it Mm -hmm. Um, so grass became the thing that helped him to feel some semblance of normal
0: now let's make a distinction here because there we're treading on something that's really important and I and it's something that I wondered about as I was reading the book And that is, when did, and I know that it's hard to pinpoint, but when do you think Mark's bipolar disorder began? I ask this question because there are several moments in the book where you, uh, as the mother and the writer, are saying, I wonder if these episodes of rage or Mark's being uh, out of sorts, or or, or um, not exhibiting the mild disposition that he had when he was younger, were these beginnings or signs of bipolar disorder, um, or are they um, just signs of being an, an adolescent? Um, mm-hmm. What do you what do you think about that?
3: Well, first of all, I should have said in the very beginning. Um, i'm I'm not a physician, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist i really am um oh I really did write this book from the perspective of a parent, the perspective specifically of a mother um, uh being observant but also then reading and reading and reading and talking to professionals so i I can't speak as a um a psychiatrist or someone who has been working in the field, but the reason I wrote it that way is that all of, once he was diagnosed at 25, uh you start thinking back, and so it was in retrospect, and I guess if I had, you know, if I were given <laughs> to do it again, I would have uh, interrogated those moments of rage in a different way. Every time I spoke to somebody about the anger or the rage or whatever. And when I say spoke to somebody, um, you know, other parents, friends, um, now probably looking back, I would have said to a doctor, tell me if there's something going on here or tell us. Um, but then it was, you know, your friends, uh, peers who have teenagers like you have. And everybody said, you know, he's just a teenager. You know, and it was almost like, don't be so harsh or lighten up and, you know, <laughs> it's okay. He'll grow out of it. Um, so I hadn't a clue to when it was happening, mm-hmm. but looking back, um, that was, that's not the way he was. That was not his personality. Um, and the rages, the, the anger became rages and it got worse.
1: Um,
3: so I, I do think, Um, It was the beginning of something, and who knows what, whether they would call it bipolar disorder then or not. Mm -hmm. don't know.
0: Uh, Towards the end of the book, um, when you reflect on your writing process and also uh, on how you came to this book, and you describe what you've just told the listeners uh, about um, allowing Mark um, and also his um, second wife Michelle to read the book. You um, quote Mark as saying, "It's hard stuff to read, Mom. I had no idea I was going to like it so much." Now, in that one sentence, there's a there's there's a couple things going on for me as a reader. Um, when Mark says, it's hard stuff to read, Mom, and then there's a switch. (laughs) I had no idea I was going to (laughs) like it so much. (laughs) Some of the hard stuff to read, I imagine, would be some of the uh, reflections on your feelings um, or your reactions uh, to some of Mark's um, episodes. Um, You describe at some point feeling afraid and you say, Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm a mother and I'm afraid of, of my own son. What, what is going, what is he going to do? You describe locking for the first time your bedroom door when, um, Mark came back to live with you and your husband, Houston. And you also describe, uh, the family dynamics between Mark and Houston, which you say um, was at times um, um, disagreeable, um, so much so that you and, and your husband uh, made a, a hard decision for him to spend some time away from the house while Mark was living there. Um, and there's one moment that I really want to ask you about. Um, in the midst of all of this, and I know that i 'm sort of layering it on and that 's because this book is so rich <laughs> um, okay. I can go on and on, but I want to put this one thing in there and ask about it. You say that um uh, at 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 some point you're at some point along the way, you had accepted mark 's condition that he was suffering from mental illness. And that now y- you you had to figure out how to deal with him, how to support him, as well as how to deal with that um yourself, but your husband had some a little bit more of a difficult time he I forget exactly the place that you describe it, but you say that he said um, at some point that that mark brought this on himself that um he had um used it had become had become known to you and Houston that Mark had used um, drugs and alcohol um, uh in as, as a teenager and uh and maybe uh he thought that 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 drug use was um a ca- a causal factor in his uh in Mark's uh, uh, bipolar disorder, can you talk about any or all of that?
3: <laughs> wow, you are a discerning leader, <laughs> and I thank you for that um uh, well we were uh, Houston and I were suffering our uh, all of our parents were alive okay um they' no they're deceased now, but Um, How do you tell grandparents? How do you tell your good friends? Um, How do you look at each other, meaning my husband and I? What do you say? What do you do? I think it was just uh, my husband, Houston, um, is probably the most supportive man I know of a child, a male child, with, with a mental disorder. And I put it all in there because I think it's all a part of it. Um, I think it was just too hard for his father to accept as something he couldn't fix. You know? And I, I, excuse me for making it a gender thing, but I do think that, uh, there are more men who, uh, when you get a problem that is just beyond, um, you you said there must be something I can do there must be um and so I think that was a part of not being able to accept Mark's illness in the beginning as a brain chemistry disorder, which
1: mm-hmm. is
3: what it is a chemical disorder um and the marijuana excuse me alcohol part of it uh is self medication uh the The statistic is pretty high, it's like 50-55% of people who uh, suffer Bipolar Disorder Type 1, which is probably considered the worst kind, uh, self-medicate because the medications for the illness are debilitating. They, it's sort of like curing the illness to some extent, even though there is no cure, or making the person seem steady, taking away the rage, whatever, whatever, but it also takes away everything else of you. And so, um, and that's what I've learned from Mark, that the times that he has maybe not taken a pill, or, or, you know, a few pills, or whatever, um, Or even if he takes the pills, just having the marijuana or the alcohol to make him feel more normal. Now, he may not look normal to the outside world, but he feels better. So, um, all these things were in play and they came out of nowhere. Blindside is what happened. I didn't mean that. We were blindsided. And so it it took Houston and I a while to um figure out how to help our son and to not feel guilty that somehow one of us had caused this to happen
1: mm-hmm. uh,
3: all of that was part of it and so we we sought uh, a psychiatrist to work with us to work with our son um and we chose someone who was um who specialized in working with bipolar disorder patients because we didn't have a son there. You see, that's the other thing. We didn't have a person. Um, This was all stuff that was being told to us, or we would get calls from hospitals or whatever. Mark was not living with us in the beginning. Um, And so this physician, this psychiatrist, helped us to understand the illness um, and therefore understand some of the behavior of our son that was so non-like our son. Our son is a very sweet, calm, um, just um, outgoing, but gently outgoing person when he is not ill. When he's in the throes of an episode, it's just the opposite. It's just amazing, the difference. So, I, I just think uh, it took Houston a little bit longer to accept Mm-hmm. That this was out of his hands, had nothing to do with him. Um, and, you know, I had I had the same problems, but then I was writing all the time. And I used writing to um, work myself out of problems. Um, so I might write a short piece about something having to do with just a specific episode, not just with Mark, with anything. Um And my husband is more of a scholar writer, so, you know, that wouldn't be his choice. Uh, So, you know, it took a lot of talking and working together and knowing that um, we would find some way. And luckily, we decided on the same path, or to stay on the same path, and how we were going to do this. But we knew that Mark's presence was not good for the three of us,
1: Mm -hmm. that
3: we had to somehow separate.
0: In a moment, uh I'm going to ask you if you would uh, read from the book. Um but before you do that, I want to uh tell you that moment in in the book um where Mark's writing for me, um as a reader shines so beautifully and that is the uh when he writes um uh About the penguins, he and and he uses them um, uh, metaphorically, and it's sort the latter part of the book, and uh, you um, uh, uh, tell the readers that um, this is well before uh, you know Happy Feet (laughs) came out. (laughs) It really
1: was,
0: (laughs) but Mark, and that's and that's more. There's a quite a bit of poetry that you include, um, but that's some of the prose, and it's just as poetic and just as beautiful. Um, and, and so I wanted to uh, share that with you. I also wanted to I want to do something that's a little bit unorthodox, and I want to as, tell you that I really was thankful. And happy and delighted at the moments of support um, that you and um, your husband and Mark uh, received from friends and from family along the way. Um, It's one of the most, um, I wanted, I teared up at moments um, Mm -hmm. of support. And um, in some ways, I was a little bit surprised because some of the moments of support uh, that you received were not easy and i and I, I and i'm thinking specifically of a colleague don't know who it is and i didn 't even try to race to find out who it might have been, but someone <laughs> in California um in one of mark's first episodes, and you didn't know what was going on uh, a, a female colleague was called. And she took Mark Uh. to her home and stayed with him and said that, you know, she was going to go to a conference that weekend, but decided not to go and that possibly she was supposed to be there, um, you know, just for that very moment. That was, that, (laughs) (laughs) just as on a human level, that meant a lot um to me and you acknowledge a lot of people in the uh in the end of the book when you do your acknowledgments. Um but I just want to say um to whoever that colleague is, thank you. Um and also I, to those I, Yeah. Go ahead.
3: No, I was gonna say I will I yeah, I will tell her. Um that yeah what you said because I agree it was it was almost like providence i mean there was nobody nobody um to ask in california i mean we were 3000 miles away um and this was it was a you know a, an earlier colleague and um and she wasn't really a friend, if you know what I mean mm-hmm. uh, a friend that somebody you talk to or you write to or whatever. every time I was in her presence, we always hit it off, and we met at meetings and places like that um, and she's still this wonderful human being, but i you know just like can you believe it can you can you believe this? um, I made a call, and I just said what I did in the book you know I I don't know what you can do I just I need some help mm-hmm. and and that woman said what she did and she did she opened her house and um Houston you know when he got there Mark had deteriorated and when she picked him up he wasn't that bad um and I guess he deteriorated because he had no medicine and he had no um Pills or whatever he was taking to uh, keep, you know, the the monsters at bay. That that was. In, one day, uh, Houston probably will write his version of that. Um, but I will tell her what you said, and I will ask her if I can tell you who she is. I just, as I said, I try to protect everybody, mm-hmm. even the. Mm-hmm. Even the good stories and the good people, Mm -hmm. because uh, some people just don't like, you know, why did you put me in there? (laughs) Um, I I mean, I, I worry about a few of the people in there who are veiled. And so I expect I might get a few jabs here and there, but that's okay. But I wouldn't want to put... Someone who's been so good to us out there, you know mm-hmm. well you know but what I, it, I, I agree with you it was a it was an amazing moment
0: yes, and that's why it's better for me not to know because it's good to know that there are still good people uh in mm-hmm. the world mm-hmm. and yeah. and there, and and that even though the the world as we read about in the newspaper and uh, see on the news is often a very scary place um, You're and, right. You're people, absolutely
1: right.
0: and and people um are are rightfully um uh self interested in their protection and um y- 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 and and some and in many ways take precautions but some people also put themselves out there and are genuinely interested in other people and this book uh you you um you describe a number of them and she wasn't the only one but also when mark gets hired at the bookstore and um yeah. at, at, at other places there are people who were genuinely um um you know interested in him as a person um but also i was and i want to say this because this is a this was a very important uh, what oprah used to say aha uh, aha moment for me
3: the, yeah.
0: Mark's employer at the bookstore happened to be
3: yeah that's a, another angel
0: yes <laughs> happened to be a nurse. With experience um, uh, with people with m- mental illness, and she was not put off by Mark's shaky hands, which she understood okay. could have been, um, you know, a symptom of the medication that that he might have mm-hmm. been on, and she understood that. And the yeah. aha for me is this: it's being an informed person about things makes all the difference sometimes and how we treat and respond to other people. And like. when you described that episode, it was like, you know, that's one of the reasons why this book is so important. Not to make, uh, it, to take a moment when we want to make hard and fast prejudgment about other people and in right. this context about um, a black man who is submitting a job application and his hands happen to be shaking at the time um, yeah. you described your own response to being an an insider outsider in in that mm-hmm. moment of watching him hand these applications to people and and you were thinking what they might have been or at least saying what they could have been thinking, which is, I wonder what that's right. about. Um,
1: right.
0: So yeah, and I, and so if you you're writing that I think means, or to me at least, it it, it meant a whole lot because it was like, yes, um, this is what this is about.
3: Well, that that is shows as I said you're I love the way you read. I love the closeness of it and the trying to figure out what's behind the words or what's not said here. What would have taken 10 pages to
1: write? (laughs) (laughs)
3: Um, and, And I so appreciate your reading that way and asking these questions because this is what I hope if nothing else from this book is that people will not be afraid to talk about mental illness and they won't be afraid to say, yes, my daughter has been struck with this or my son or, and I find that when I talk to people before this book came out, when I was talking to people and asking about experiences, um, the one or the two things that people would not speak and for a while, I thought, well, maybe you know you always think that maybe Mark is the only one, and the two things were prison jail, either one or the other um and um uh, and addiction mm-hmm. and both things go so tightly with bipolar disorder, especially for young black men
1: mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. um, and the numbers we know the numbers of black men incarcerated when Mark gives me the stories of jail, which I do do make a difference between jail and prison, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But in jail, and you know you can stay in jail for a very long time before your case even comes up. Um, So he said he was lucky enough to be put on the sick ward because he had a lawyer, Mm. okay? And also when he got put on the sick ward, uh, they gave him his pills every day, and then just like they gave everybody else their pills, and he said, you wouldn't believe, Mom, how many of the guys don't take their meds. Mm-hmm. They sell them. Mm-hmm. And so he, in telling me the story, because I I would never have known, um, he said, I really am taking my medicine. I really do want to get out of here.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but he was even amazed at um, the bartering that was going on for pills. Um, so... You know, that's another part that I don't write about because that would have that would have opened up all kinds of other things to bring in to write about. But mm-hmm. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
3: jail and black men and um, what you have to be so careful of. And we were lucky enough to have money to get a lawyer, all right, to tell us what to do and help to get him out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, even our lawyer, who was not black, said... Um, you know, some of these guys are, will be in here repeatedly because they're mentally ill. They need something else that the jails can't do. Mm-hmm. Okay? They don't have money for therapy plus meds. So it's just so, you're right, you started out by saying how complicated, um, these issues are. Uh, but I, I do hope that especially African American people will talk more and more about, um, uh, mental illness and, just have forums. All of the literature that we read, okay, not all, but a lot of the fiction that we read, there's mental illness buried,
1: mm-hmm. okay, bigger mm-hmm.
3: Thomas, you know? Mm-hmm. How can you talk about bigger Thomas in Native Son without talking about mental illness? Mm-hmm. But I don't know how many people do. Um, and, you know, I, I think of when I was teaching literature only before I got deeply into trauma, um, I didn't see these characters. I didn't talk about them this way. But if I teach them again, and I hope next year I will, um, I probably will make that a whole thing that we have to look at and and uh pull apart. Uh, quicksand and passing. You know? Um mm-hmm. there's mental illness there. And I, I find that fascinating. I also find it something that we've been ashamed to talk about. So I I hope the book will cut through shame and embarrassment, and some of the stigma might float away. Um, but you, I, I really go ahead.
0: I, I was going to ask if you, uh, what's the pushback, um, out, out outside or besides um, outside of or besides shame? What's the pushback? Do you think? Um, to talk or or that you've experienced or that you would imagine um, from African Americans uh, in talking about mental illness
3: Um, I would imagine because I uh, haven't had anyone say that to me but you know when you get into a room and you're talking to I've only had two groups of African Americans uh, totally so far with the book Um, and they quote unquote behave differently from the mixed groups. <laughs> um so I don't have a lot of people who've said anything, but people begin to nod. You know that nod you get mm-hmm. when people are are saying, Oh yeah, oh yeah, you yeah. know it's almost like church <laughs> but um I would imagine some of the pushback is, you know, we get all of whatever, um black from um, places that say you, like our son, you, you don't belong in this section of the city at two or three o'clock in the morning. What are you doing here? Uh, you know, explain yourself. Okay. So you have the color of your skin. Uh and that's not for everybody because every now our, our, uh, colors are like rainbows, right? Mm-hmm.
1: But, but
3: with my generation in particular, and I did have a my generation, um, fest. Um, of people in in Philadelphia, and that's where I got a lot of the nodding uh people who were um, seemingly talking about husbands um partners um grown sons, grown daughters that you know we've been fighting blackness just. Time to get by because the colors, uh, colors are wrong, okay, for some parts of the society. And you want to add on mental illness to that? That's a lot, okay? Mm-hmm. And it's the same pushback I got with black women and rape when I did the first book. It mm-hmm. um, wasn't kind of the same thing. We're already stigmatized. Who wants to be stigmatized one more time?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Okay, so I think that that's my imagination, that that would be the big pushback. Um, and, but by the same token, I saw people uh, people in those same uh, instances who wanted to talk, and they wanted to talk uh, because I didn't know it was something that might help him, you know? So there's that, too. I, I hope there's more of the latter.
0: <laughs> I do, too. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, Charlotte, will you read a little bit from the book for us?
3: Oh, wow. Sure. Let's see. Uh, Okay. If I... You can stop me if I go on too long. How about about five minutes?
0: Okay. That's good.
3: Or we can do less because you'll be able to tell me where I can stop. Okay. I think I'll read from the preface. Mm Mm-hmm. And that way the rest is saved. <laughs> ah, um well the summer of nineteen ninety six was a hot summer but I thought it was quite uneventful until uh I got a call. Yeah. And in the summer of nineteen ninety six our son Mark made his Cree de Cour from Los Angeles. My husband and I were thousands of miles away in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Mark was 25 years old, living with his fiance Lisa, and pursuing an advanced degree in film studies at the University of Southern California. Earlier that evening, when he couldn't find us by telephone, Mark had called Washington, D.C. to speak with my father, who in turn called us. My father described Mark as being in some sort of trouble. Mark was saying strange things, and he wouldn't stop talking. My father told us to wait for Mark's call. When I answered the phone a few hours later, I heard the panic in my son's voice. In guarded tones, he whispered, Mom, they're watching me. I can see them all around. They're watching me. I I don't know what to do. Help me, Mom. There were tears just beyond his words. His voice sounded hurried, fearful, tight. I felt his agitation. I almost believed he was being watched. My husband and I desperately tried to figure out what was happening with our only son. His need for rescue was clear. Talking to him in turns, we attempted to convey some degree of calm. We assured Mark that his father would catch the next plane to Los Angeles to bring him home to Philadelphia. I would be at home, waiting. In my absolute naïveté, I believed that Mark simply needed a few weeks to regroup from the stress of graduate school. In reality, our son was experiencing his first psychotic episode, and he would later be diagnosed with bipolar disorder, type 1. We had been blindsided. Thousands of miles away, Mark had progressed brilliantly, yet sleeplessly through his graduate courses at USC. Amidst his studies, he lost his bearings. He heard voices from Neptune speaking of cosmic design, which competed with the wisdom of his professors. Mark became gaunt, messianic, in touch with planets and whole worlds of delusion unknown to us. In real time, he would come to meet the rough, cold, metallic life of city jails and hospital gurneys, the suffering of an unquiet mind, to borrow K. Redfield Jamison's phrase. The horror of what was happening to Mark was compounded by our family's ignorance. We knew nothing of mental illness except what we had viewed in films or read in newspapers and novels. The images of mental illness in popular culture are exaggerated and meant to shock. In them, we saw no resemblance to our son. Mark had not lived with us since leaving for college at the age of 18. When Mark crashed, we attempted to piece together the previous months and years of his life. We discovered he had been bouncing from depression to hypomania, back to depression and then to full mania, often combined with bouts of paranoia and psychosis. We also learned that for many years, the exact number yet to be determined, he had tried to quiet his demons with drugs and alcohol. I learned that the name of this double affliction which combines both mental illness and substance addiction, his dual diagnosis. Gradually, Mark descended into madness and then hit rock bottom.
0: Thank you so much, Charlotte, for sharing that opening. It's a brilliant overture to this uh, wonderful book. It's an excellent book. Can you tell us um, what you're working on now?
3: I really am not working on anything right now except uh, trying to get, I suppose, get messages out about the issue of mental illness, in particular bipolar disorder, and people have been very, very accepting, and I've been getting invitations to come and talk to groups as well as readings, so that's what I'm going to focus on right now, and I don't have another writing project in mind.
0: I know that when you do, though, that it'll be just as brilliantly (laughs) conceived (laughs) um, as this book and just as purposeful, I I might add. I I, um, really honor and adore the fact that um, you use your um, academic uh, life um, and your scholarship um, to help better society and to help bring attention to issues that people desperately need to know about and talk about. Thank you so much for joining us on New Books in African-American Studies.
3: Thank you, Rishon, very much for this opportunity. Take care.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank you for listening to my interview with Charlotte Pierce Baker about her new book, This Fragile Life, a mother's story of a bipolar son, published by Lawrence Hill Books in 2012. This exquisitely written narrative is power packed with so many topics and issues that our interview could have gone on for more than an hour and a few minutes. What that means is that you have to go out and read it.